I am Andrew Ron. I'm an accredited rural appraiser, and I am president of the Montana chapter of the ASFMRA and communications director for the Montana Farm and Ranch Brokers Association, the two top industry organizations in the state. I am also the proud creator of Montana LandSource, the industry standard for access to rural land listings and sales, and land market information and insights. There is no other more comprehensive resource for insider Montana land information than Montana LandSource. Go to www.mtlandsource.com. I am part of the Ranch Investor Podcast because I want to be part of the conversation with other top land experts on the future of the land market, land investment, land ownership, and management. I'm Coulter DeVries, owner of Ranch Investor Advisory and Brokerage Services. I'm an accredited land consultant with the Realtor Land Institute and proud member of ASFMRA. As a former commercial and ag banker, my main reason for doing this podcast is to simply gauge the market's appetite for crowdsourcing investment in a ranch real estate fund. This fund would allow you to hunt, fish, ride, camp, and recreate how you want while also enjoying the financial and portfolio benefits of investing in a large western ranch. For rural land enthusiasts who want to deepen their knowledge of the ranch real estate market, grow their portfolio, and be viewed as a trusted advisor, the Ranch Investor Podcast is the most downloaded and informative industry-specific content that intrigues while entertains. Curated by subject matter experts to give you immense benefit, because we believe your time is valuable. Welcome awesome to the Ranch Investor Podcast with Coulter DeVries and Andy Ron. Today we have follow-up to uh, 1031 exchanges. And before you turn this off, we want to <laughs> tell you that this will not get too technical. We're not going to get in the weeds. We do have two attorneys here, so I'm very nervous. But uh, we're not gonna we're not gonna do legal speak. We're gonna talk some flat brimmer cowboy hats, and uh, we're gonna talk about some uh, some uh, rangeland conditions in Utah. Maybe some history of the Big Hole of Montana. But Max, thanks for coming on again. You were here for our first season, and uh, anyone out there, we have a lot of brokers listening from Texas and Oklahoma. And what I like to do with that episode, Max, that was super awesome the first time we did this. Um, I send it to my clients who are doing a 1031, and I say, hey, here's a way to self-educate yourself. Um, you know, you're going to do a 1031 on this $5 million farm. You ought you to take 45 minutes and listen to this. So that first episode we did back in season one was awesome, Max. Appreciate that. Let's talk a little bit more today. There might be some updates to the code, to the regulation, new administration since since we last recorded. And uh, you brought on a new partner, another another attorney. Yes, sir. Can Jonathan, can you go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us who you are? Yeah, so <clears throat> uh, great to be here. Thanks, Coulter. My name's Jonathan Barge. I've uh, been on here with uh, Max for the last uh, four or five months and uh, he's been showing me the ropes in 1031. Uh, prior to that, <clears throat> I spent uh, about, uh, you know, six months or so. I was a, a, a private practice lawyer, worked for the government for a little bit, and then I was in law school. But I also spent about a decade with the uh, Bozeman Police Department, <clears throat> seven years of that as an investigator. And I was also in the in the Air Force. So kind of a long path of mixture of government work and things like that before I got into uh, – 
property and uh, tax code and, and things that uh, are really interesting. And I'm having a blast working with Max and mentoring underneath him. So thanks for having me on. So you went from enforcing the law to arguing the law. Yes, exactly. All right. A little bit of defense in there too. Max, for those who didn't hear the first episode or the first time you came on in season one, tell us your background. Uh, I was born and raised on a ranch in uh, southwestern Montana and also spent some time in Kalispell during the high school years and uh, ended up going to law school, came back to Montana in 1976 and uh, as an attorney, as a fledgling attorney, and got a chance to start doing general practice in Dillon, Montana, where the pavement ends and the West begins, and uh, learned a lot about different types of law practice, but gradually began to get involved more in real estate transactional stuff and had started doing 1031 exchanges as a transactional attorney back in 1978. And then I formed an exchange company called American Equity Exchange in 1991, and, uh, and started uh, working on specifically exchange transactions and then um, throughout the remainder of the 19, uh, 1990s, 2000s, I ended up selling my company, American Equity Exchange, to Accruit, which is another qualified intermediary company that specializes in 1031 exchanges. They're headquartered in Denver. And I've been with them since July 16, 2018, and uh, it's really been great. As I ended up uh, being able to take some of my old employees with me that are still working for Accruit, and then uh, ended up working with a great bunch of folks that were either there before that we've added on since then. And we've got about 30-some employees scattered around the United States doing 1031 exchanges, exclusively that. So, Andy, you guys had a presentation this morning with Max for our Montana Association of Farm and Ranch Brokers. What's new in the market June 2022? Well, we're definitely seeing uh, more listings coming on, on board, and uh, this is something I'm interested to ask Max about because uh, 1031 obviously being a significant impact of the Montana land market, but the issue in our market today is no replacement par uh, property people that would be sellers are just saying, where the heck am I going to go? There's, there's not enough on the market, not enough uh, replacement property out there. So that's what's constraining our market now is just really lack of supply. Still, still have demand. Demand is still out there, but just uh, we're at about half of the listings that we would normally be at this time of year. So, Well, Max, you could, you could facilitate um, a Delaware statutory trust, couldn't you? Yeah, there's a lot of clients that are involved in the acquisition of, of different types of replacement property, one of which is property that's owned by a Delaware statutory trust. You know, and I, like you, you didn't want to get too much in the weeds here, Culver, so you, <laughs> you start right out talking about DSTs. But essentially what a Delaware statutory trust structure is, is a way for, for people that want to own property to own fractionalized interest in really large properties to be able to have a piece of the pie, as it were. And uh, they're able to uh, because of the way they're structured, when you acquire the beneficial interest in the, in the statutory trust, you're acquiring real property, a real property interest. It's not a security, it's not a partnership interest, and therefore it qualifies as a 1031 replacement property. And uh, it allows people to invest anywhere from $100,000 as a minimum investment, typically, for those types of properties, all the way up to you know multi multi million dollar properties if they want to be a sole owner on those properties or a small you know have a have a bigger share of the pie. 
So, Jonathan, what do you think? Is that a pretty poor excuse from sellers right now that we have nowhere to go with our money? <clears throat> no replacement property. There's nothing out there I like. I, I like today's values, but I don't want to sell because I'm going to get caught paying taxes. Right. We honestly, that's a conversation that we have on a daily basis is how do you strategize to figure out what your next move is? And um, when you're dealing with investment property, you know, I don't, <clears throat> I honestly think that uh, it might be a little bit of a poor excuse. They're obviously a little bit concerned too about what the, you know, if they're going to end up buying at the top, if they're selling the top, all those things are going through their head, trying to figure out um, exactly what their replacement property is going to look like. And that's sometimes where we come in as qualified intermediary. <clears throat> you know, we can offer things uh, like a parking transaction or a reverse exchange where we go out there and we get that property under lock for you. So you can, you can feel a little sense of security that you know what your next move is. So yes, there is low inventory, but it doesn't mean all of your options are depleted. I've done the reverse and you guys, you guys actually facilitated that. So thank you. Thanks for helping me get a listing and get a place sold using a reverse because that replacement property was very important to an owner operator farmer um andy do you track do you track these 1031s yeah a little bit not as thoroughly as i'd like because um, that's not always disclosed of course that's the that's our central issue in montana disclosure issues so um it'd be good to and i suspect uh and we talked about this at lunch hour ago earlier that uh you know it's not as reported um it's probably more prevalent than we even realize um and especially if, if you look at either side of the transaction you know whether the seller or the buyer or both are involved in 1031 but it's a huge component of the of the market and again i mean we just hear that over and over that more properties would be on the market but uh would be sellers just uh say there's nowhere to go so Aside from subscribing to Montana Land Source to uh, be on top of inventory, what would you, what recommendations do you have, to Max, be, to, for for would be sellers that uh, you know want want to sell but one are call concerned. Coulter, yeah, yeah. <laughs> subscribe to Montana Land Source, call Coulter and call Max. It's a we got a we got a tray of three three legs of the stool right no here. No kickbacks either. That's not legal. <laughs> that none of that under the table going on here. Well, you know, obviously, like like you just said, you know, getting in touch with, you know, the the top notch realtors out there, the ones that are moving property, such as yourself, um, <laughs> but there's there's others out there too that can certainly do a good job, you know, being out there and and trying to figure out kind of what their clients' needs are and, and making sure that that they're going to get that client into the into the property that's going to really work for them. I mean, obviously, a big difference between getting them into a farm or ranch property or if they're in a position where they're selling out of a farm or ranch property, trying to get them to redeploy their asset into other replacement property that's going to provide them a good income stream over the long term. And, uh, you know, that's another big, a big issue right now is where's the economy going right now? As, as Andy said, are you, are you selling high, but you're buying high or buying higher? Or are you buying uh, in a in a position right now where maybe there's still some there's still some room before you get to the ceiling? That's the big issue we see right now too. I, we see, I think I've talked to a number of potential uh, exchangers that have already sold relinquished property, but have not been able to find not only inventory of any kind, but more more importantly something that's going to make sense for them. 
and they've ended up terminating, you know, their sale that their relinquished property sale because they had a contingency in there, backed out of the deal, and and are going back to the drawing board trying to find something that's going to work as a replacement before they pull the trigger on the sale of their relinquished property. You have just hit on the main topic I wanted to get into for this episode. So. A banker friend of mine, he called me and he said, I think I figured out how this whole thing crashes, how it crashes overnight, and it's a bloodbath. It's 2008, Bear Stearns. People are taking their boxes out of the office. (laughs) And uh, we got to talking, and our theory was low interest rates led to high valuations on commercial real estate. Because if you say, if you have a multifamily real estate, normally there's going to be a 4% spread on the cap rate. So if a 10-year treasury was at 1.6%, now you have multifamily selling at 5.6 cap rate. Well, that lower cap down from seven, that just created a bunch of equity you have. And you can either cash that equity out and roll it into another purchase, or you can just capitalize on that commercial real estate and sell it. And I'm only using commercial real estate to show the effects of interest rates and numbers. Well, All this printed money and all the cheap money out there created hundreds of millions of dollars of 1031s. And our theory is, is that the wildfire, this domino effect, this 1031 leads to a 1031 leads to a 1031, those are going to dry up. We're seeing a lot of offers out there right now. People are writing offers on ranches contingent upon my ranch selling. And they might have an offer on their ranch that is contingent upon another ranch selling. And none of the earnest money is hard. And by the time it gets to me, this contingency could be five transactions deep, $200 million deep, that could just evaporate and disappear. If one one piece falls out of that, the whole domino effect is disrupted. And we believe that that is the new derivative. That is the derivative of 2008 housing market that's going to crash this whole thing. What are your thoughts on that? You know, um, I'll admit, you know, right now, I'm not, I'm not the deep thinker that you are on this stuff. I'm, I'm a, just a poor old country attorney at heart, you know? But, a lot of time um, behind the wheel to muse, man. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, I've thought a lot about that. Are we looking at another 2008, 2000 to 2010 type of situation? And uh, I think... You know, I would tend to agree that there's a different, uh, a different uh, dynamic going to take place because I don't see us in that same situation right now. It, it, if there's if there's a crash, it's going to be because of different factors. Um, and don't ask me why. I mean, that's just a gut feeling I have. And you said you didn't want to get too deep in the weeds, so I'm just going <laughs> to talk gut feelings right now. But um, I I do really think you know that you know we're where inflation goes, where interest rates goes, is going to have a big impact on what happens in not only 1031 exchanges, but also just real estate transactions. We had that discussion today in the, in the meeting this morning and talking about interest rates. I mean, when Jerome Powell and Janet Yellen met with the president this week, there was discussion about, you know, where they think that interest rate's going to end up. And you're probably looking at the Fed rate at 2.75. I think it's going to go higher than that. Because in order, to, I think in order to get inflation under control, they're going to have to have interest rates that are getting closer to what their rate of inflation is. And right now we're talking about what, 
uh, somewhere between, it's fluctuating between six to nine percent, probably on the high side of that. And I, I don't see interest rates at this point being forecast to get close to that, but I think there's a, a reality that they could get that way. You know, a lot of questions I get, you know, our market isn't, the land market in Montana is not very directly affected by interest rates because we have so many cash buyers, but it's still amazing how much impact that has nonetheless. Mm -hmm. I mean, even though a lot of these purchases aren't finance-based, uh, it just still affects the, uh, the overall economic environment. And, you know, it's interesting in, t in hard times, you know, just like gold, uh, people do tend to gravitate towards land as a tangible asset. But boy, uh, our land market sure is sensitive, I would say, I would argue, to the national uh, economy. Um, mm. when, thing when there's uncertainty in the economy, that sure seizes things up around here. And eventually, uh, we kind of get some interest in land and some uh, motivation there. Again, the tangible assets, gold and land. But uh, I think we're pretty, pretty, our market's pretty sensitive to the national, national movements. Don't give sellers another excuse. <laughs> now you've just given them uh, the 2022 midterm See, election. brokers always get mad at me. When yeah. I, whenever I say anything, <laughs> I, guess I get crap from You get brokers. castigated for telling the truth. Right? <laughs> yeah. so, the truth as you know it. One of the, one of the things that, that I think we, we had some discussions, too, with, you know, there's some title company people that we talked with this morning. And, and th they were saying that right now they're seeing their order levels down a little bit to about where they were in 2019. And everybody's going, initial reaction is, wow, they're really dropped off. But consider that 2019 was a banner year for title companies. I yeah. mean, it was, it was off the charts. So yeah, maybe we're seeing a little bit of slowdown right now. Uh, I think, you know, some of that's due to what Andy just hit on, that there are some people that are just sitting back holding their cards pretty close to their chest right now before they make a move because they're not sure what's going to happen, you know, with this economy. That's the big, that's the big qualifier here, I think, for a lot of people. Jonathan, what are your thoughts on my theory? Uh, shoot some holes in this that the contingencies I'm writing offers contingent upon the sale of my property. I'm going to do a 1031. Um, that is a derivative. There's, there's a, there's an underlying tangible asset, but that that contingency in the 1031 is not tangible, it's not liquidable. Uh, what do you think about my theory that that's going to crash at all? <clears throat> I think I would jump back into Max's theory here and say that, the, you know, let's go back to 2019, erase what's happened in the last two years maybe for, for a second and just look at what was happening before then. I think what we're seeing a lot of in the, you know, 1031 industry is People are scraping that investment off the top. They're taking, you know, they're they're taking their gains when they've got them, and and that might be a trend for the moment. And obviously, 1031s will always be available. I think we're seeing a spike in that. And I think we're seeing a, a spike in cash moving from one investment to another. And then, like Andy said, <clears throat> you've got a large portion of these deals where you know maybe say deals where it's a you know exceeding five million you're not going to have a lot of lenders involved it's more cash buyers but in the you know sub five million dollar category you could have 1031 contingencies and some some lender involvement so rates come into play so i think that maybe you're seeing that at the at the very moment maybe because there's a tail end to what we're seeing in the markets you know real estate's catching up to uh you know that two month lag period that we've got you know two or three months where it's catching up to what's actually going to occur. So, you know, I think uh, 
your theory is pretty solid for is, is how is, you know, folks are, you know, scraping cash off the top to move their investments around. But I think that that might be a short term, short term trend at the moment. You, you made a comment that 1031s will always be there. Mm -hmm. That was, that was very, very secure when you made that. Um, when I tell clients that I've got a DC insider, I've, I've got a guy. He, he's in the I know swamp. A guy that knows a guy. He's in the swamp. He's on the hill. <clears throat> My lead lobbyist is Max Hansen for the 1031 industry. Uh, Max has done a lot of work in Washington, D.C. I'm assuming with accounting firms, with attorneys, uh, people who are making money off of 1031s, Max. Um, tell us are they always going to be there? Because that's a hot-button topic. Uh, they're a progressive administration. They're looking for any way to shave another 15% off of uh, people's earnings, people's appreciation. They're looking, they're looking to target the rich, and they think the rich use 1031. So where, where do we sit in your glass ball with a progressive leftist administration? Well, first of all, I just want to qualify your previous statement about me being the lead lobbyist. Uh, I, have to tell you, I have to tell you that there's a great coalition of people that have been involved in lobbying on the Hill uh, and in state, in state venues, too, over the last 20 or so years. Um, among those you know, are the Federation of Exchange Accommodators, which is an uh, organization people by largely qualified intermediary companies like ours. But we've also got a National Association of Realtors. We've got CCIM, Real Estate Roundtable, uh, a host of others, National Cattlemen's Beef Association, National Farm Bureau Federation, uh, probably about 20 to 25, you know, principal players in that coalition. And that really began to get ginned up. Um, we didn't have that concerted effort until probably about 2014, 15, when we began to hear talk about repeal of 1031. Again, you know, there's always been attempts, it seemed like every 10 years or so, or every time there's a change in administration or, or policy, that we'd see some something happening with 1031, but it always got beat back because, because it's a proven, you know, economic stimulator. You know, and it's, it's something that builds the economy. It's, it's, it's benefiting everybody across the board. But when we began to hear earnest talks about repeal of 1031 on both the Republican side of the aisle and on the Democratic side of the aisle, that's when that coalition came together. And, uh, and it was because of that in 2017 when there was talk about overall repeal that that, that coalition was able to save 1031s for real property. They lost 1031s for personal property, which was huge. And that was a result of... Um, People wanting to get the corporate tax rate, the big, the big 10 or big 12, their corporate tax rate down to 21%. And, and the personal property exchanges, the revenue side of that, the revenue raise on that was enough to get that done. But we were able to keep a real property exchanges. And, and so um, having been through that whole thing for the last 20 years and having seen that, that whole evolution of how all of a sudden, every time, every congressional session, it seems like there's something that, that comes out of, the, out of the bill hopper, you know, to do something with 1031. In the case of the Obama administration, it was a cap on, on uh, capital gain deferral of $1 million per year. 
we didn't see that, you know, get any traction. And there we went through the four years of Trump. And then when Biden got elected, there's that cap that now is a $500,000 annual cap on, on, on capital gain exclusion. And just stepping back for people who may not fully know or appreciate or understand what we're talking about. I mean, 1031 is the, is the tax code. Mm-hmm. Uh, number and the the premise uh, d- it's deferred tax right so the yeah. whole the whole premise is that and the reason why it benefits the economy and whatnot is it allows for reinvestment it allows for investment to roll and you're just deferring taxes um, yeah the the whole reason behind tax the the tax policy under uh, underlying section 1031 which by the way has been around since 1921 it's been a it's been a part of the tax code since 1921. And the reason that it's survived for over 100 years is because there's sound tax policy behind it. If somebody's just selling a piece of property and exchanging into another property and they're not taking cash out of the deal, there's no tax. They shouldn't have to pay a tax because there's no cash to pay the tax with, okay? Uh, and, and that's one of the reasons why it's, it's retained, uh, why it's been so resilient over the years. But now, you know, there's always people that are questioning tax policy. From the very from its very core, and that's why I think we're seeing more frequent attempts to either repeal 1031 or cap you know capital gains exclusion. I mean a deferral at at a, at a $500,000 next year. Who knows? Uh, the next administration may be $250,000 because there's that perception that Jonathan was talking about that only the rich people benefit from these 1031 exchanges. You know, before we had, you know, anecdotal data about what 1031 exchange does for the economy, but in 2014, 2015, we, I say that 1031 coalition commissioned Ernst & Young to do uh, a macroeconomic study, and they commissioned two tax professors, Ling and Petrova, you know, to do a microeconomic study. And those studies have been updated continually since then, and they show, you know, um, you know, undeniably, you know, that 1031 exchanges build the economy across the board. And it's not just the big people, the people that are selling big, big, big properties for a lot of bucks. It's the mom and pops. It's the moms and dads that have a one single family residential rental property or a duplex. You know, they sell the property because they get a great offer on it. They have an opportunity to take that money and invest in another property that is going to fit their needs better or maybe is in a different location that fits with where they're planning on changing their lifestyle, et cetera. And family farms and ranches. Yeah, family That's farms right. and ranches. We have, a, the reality is, is that there are a lot of multi-generational family farms and ranches where those people have worked 24-7, 365, you know, during that whole line of, of, of generational uh, uh, transition and they don't have the next the next generation coming up through the ranks. They want to be real estate brokers, or they want to be podcasters, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and and they're wanting to go off dig? and do something Is different. A... <laughs> and uh, or yeah. attorneys. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, nobody wants to be an attorney. No, my they, brother uh, is pulling a calf yeah, right now. So, <laughs> <laughs> but but you know they they don't they don't have the next generation coming up, and so when they have an opportunity to sell part of their ranch perhaps maybe they're not selling the whole thing they're just downsizing so they can take care of what they've got left but they're taking the proceeds from that sale and they're redeploying it into different types of assets assets in different parts of the country uh different property types um and and uh, they're just really kind of hedging their bets and for the first time in their life a lot of farm and ranch families have got another stream of income that's not dependent upon the ag sector which is really a boon for them 
It's um, interesting though. One thing I've observed on that front, I'm sure you've, you know, obviously you've dealt with, gosh, maybe hundreds and hundreds of farm families and ranch families that have diversified into other uh, real estate mm -hmm. classes. The class, the classic example is selling the ranch. There's no next generation or whatnot, or a portion of the ranch and rolling into like an investment, uh, uh, commercial investment property where they, you know, don't have to manage the place, but get that, get that ongoing revenue. But one thing I've noticed is how many of those farm and ranchers are really resistant to moving into a different class of, of property. They're farm and ranch all the way. And, and I've been part of some, some worked for some people that it just made the most sense in the world. These guys could roll their asset into an income producing property, but they just can't wrap their brain around, you know, investment is, is ag land. Do, yeah. do you see that? I see it a lot. You know, it, um, what it takes, I mean, I, I have a lot of respect for the brokers that understand the quandary those people feel they're in. Right. Especially people that, you know, maybe they've helped them sell their relinquished property, but those brokers now become buyer's brokers for them. Or they're able to know other people, network with other people that are brokers for sellers of property that makes sense for that, for that uh, prospective 1031 exchanger. Um, you know, those, it, the, the onus is really on those brokers to kind of see where that, where that buyer is coming from, where that now exchanger buyer is coming from and what types of properties make sense for them. So in some instances, you know, a DST product, for instance, you know, where they're buying, you know, uh, a 5% interest in a former shopping center that's been repurposed into a distribution center for Amazon or a, a central distribution center for FedEx or UPS or some of those, or perhaps a, a large multifamily residential property in a, in a good urban area that has good property management in place. So they're not going to have to worry about the day-to-day -day operational details that they had when they stepped off the back porch and decided what they were going to do that day on the farm or ranch. Yeah, but the level of comfort into a whole different investment yes. class, it seems like. But that's where getting good advice yeah. from people like yourself. And, uh, so Jonathan, and this is, this is all getting pretty complex, and a lot of people are going to approach this that, you're about the only attorneys I would ever want to talk to. I, I hope I'd never have to talk to another one. A lot of people would say, um, you know, I want to interact with you as little as possible. <laughs> but when, the, when, I, when I send people your way, Jonathan, do you guys have additional help, tax attorneys, estate attorneys? I mean, is, is there a way that you can uh, tick off uh, check a lot of boxes with a 1031 the sale of property or is it too late at that point should they've already talked to tax attorneys accountants cpas estate attorneys trust what 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 can you help with for these real difficult decisions the family ranch where uh yeah mailbox money sounds great andy but i don't i don't know a thing about that how are we going to accomplish that jonathan yeah, <clears throat> great question. Great question, Coulter. So I would I would say it cuts both ways. I mean, you can look at it and say uh, the best the best avenue to look at and say is this generally you know assess your timeline and say okay we're really looking at this 1031 is designed <clears throat> the, the section it's really a it's it's a wealth building tool it's something that's there to it like I said it's not escaping tax gains or capital gains or anything like that. It's, it's really just deferring them down the road. And so in all honesty, it's, it's a generational wealth building tool. It's something that, of, you know, a farmer ranch family would need to look back. Well, there's a client 
Nope. Coulter's got to go. Inbound call. Coulter. <laughs> <clears throat> so. Yeah, this is Coulter. <laughs> sell it right now. Sell. 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 Exchange. The other broker told you six million. <laughs> yeah, I'll do. I'll do six point five on that listing. <laughs> that's that's inside look. You saw it here first. <laughs> Uh, that's where we come in, honestly, because we have a great referral network. Uh, and Max and I, you know, our background, we handle, you know, we can give, we don't, we're not here as qualified intermediary to honestly to give tax advice or estate planning advice, but we have a great uh, network of referrals and attorneys that we deal with. And we can take the whole picture of your transaction and, and line it out with, you know, exactly what you're trying to accomplish with your, you know, estate planning goals and look at what the property is and what property qualifies for, you know, an exchange or what, and then look at the personal property uh, side of this and then get them linked up with CPAs and, and tax advisors and, and quality legal counsel to help them with the, you know, purchase and sale agreements and things like that. So that's, we have the capability to um, engage with these referral sources that we work with all the time you know, uh, other types of brokers for, you know, triple net leases, like you were mentioning earlier, Andy. So, um, they come to us, we can provide, uh, you know, a full spectrum of advice when it comes to section 1031 of the code and how that fits with their transaction and their sale and their overall wealth, uh, building strategies and goals. But then we can also, um, refer them to, partners that we have in the industry that, that deal with this on a day-to-day basis. So, um, honestly, it's, if, if there's any concern about, uh, what to do, where do I go? And this is, you know, all you've known is the family ranch. Um, so picking up the phone and calling us is a, you know, or working with your, your broker or somebody like Coulter, that's, that's a great way to get started. And then to, you know, lay into the professionals that can help you make that next move. We've talked a lot on this podcast in the past about if you are an owner operator in Montana, if you're a a farmer rancher, but you own the land you operate on, you have two business enterprises going on. You Mm -hmm. have your ag business and you have a land ownership enterprise. And just hearing you talk, you know, about the complexities and I've done a lot of estate appraisals in my career and that's kind of how I got started early on. That's mostly what I did was estate appraisals going on 20 years now. And Back then, uh, it was scary sometimes how little planning some of these, you know, you, you know, you hear these horror stories about people who didn't plan sufficiently having to sell to satisfy, mm-hmm. you know, estate tax, death tax. That's, that's really rare these days. I think the memo has been fully absorbed that, uh, you know, failing to plan is planning to fail. But yeah. um, it just speaks to if you own, you know, s- substantial acreage, you have a, you have a, uh, an enterprise there that, that takes, takes management, takes insight. And guys like these are great to, uh, I know you guys take calls and give out a certain amount of preliminary information for people up front to help them get started or, you know, sort out what they're, what they're dealing with. But it, you really do need to consult experts because, uh, it's just a complex, it's a complex entity, complex vehicle that needs, needs care and needs management. You know, uh, to go back to what you were just saying and what Jonathan was saying, I mean, we I always start out the, the the conversation with potential clients. You know, one of the first questions I ask them is, who's your CPA? Next question is, you know, who's who's your attorney? Especially, and then if they've got a real complicated situation, do you have a tax attorney that you're working with? Mm-hmm. On this deal, one of the problems that I see a lot of times is that they haven't 
talk to those professionals. They're waiting until they walk into their office the next year in March when they drop off all their tax stuff for their CPA to let them know they did an exchange the year before, and that's going to be reflected on their return. That's, that's always been something that's concerning to me. Uh, but the, the reality is there's a lot of people that are trying to minimize costs. That's why they're doing 1031 exchanges, by the way, if, if, if nobody's noticed. But they don't like to end up incurring what they see as unnecessary costs payable to an attorney or to a CPA. Um, and so, you know, we really encourage them to really start thinking in terms of team on these types of deals, mm -hmm. especially these big deals. I mean, there's, there's a lot of people we work with, you know, that are relatively you know, middle of the road types of exchanges that are not super complicated, but they've really got good tax advice and they've been talking to their CPA about the potential sale and what they're going to do with the proceeds. You know, whether they've got any net operating loss carry forwards that they can use to offset some of the gains so they don't have to exchange the whole amount. Is there going to be acquisition of, of uh, property, you know, that's got some depreciation uh, context to it or op opportunities for them that they can get some immediate expensing deductions to offset some of the capital gain on the sale so they don't have to do an exchange. There's little nuances that they've already explored. But on the other end of the spectrum, we've got some guy that's been out there working his, 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 uh, his place, you know, for the last 70 years that he inherited from his mom and dad, you know, that's got a flip phone and, uh, you know, he doesn't have a he doesn't have a computer. We have to send stuff. And to it's him. a little Our bit God. modern for his taste he, exactly. and sensibility. <laughs> and, uh, Absolutely. And and he's and he and he files his own tax returns, but he's got a twenty million dollar ranch sale. It's it's pretty pretty inter interesting. That's what makes this this business fun for me, and it has been fun for me for the last forty plus years. That. It, you work a lot with salt of the earth people, whether they're a farmer or rancher or they're somebody in, in uh, you know, in some little Midwest town that's just worked their rear ends off to, you know, to develop some kind of retirement for themselves. And that's essentially what it is. All these people, they're not working for a company where they've got a 401k. Their 401k is in the ground. And that's where we're out there to try to help them preserve that. Well, I can say from my experience as a uh, skilled pressure salesman, <laughs> I love with a delicate touch. <laughs> I love hard deadlines, and I love being under the gun at a time frame. Pressure, pressure, pressure. So I love the forty-five day identification period and get it closed in one eighty. That that works for me. So please don't let that ever go away. In fact, with your lobbying, let's tighten that up a little bit, Matt. <laughs> Thirty and ninety, right? That's right. <laughs> well, you know, that's that brings up an interesting point too. We, you know, there's obviously a lot of people, or maybe not obviously to you, but there are there are some people that are a little bit, you know, got their back up a little bit because, you know, hey, I'm looking at trying to find replacement property and I'm out there on day 35 and I don't see anything out there on the horizon, you know, and I, I wish to heck they'd extend the identification period to 90 days and we had 360 days in order to acquire the property we identify because then we got to do due diligence and we got to get the thing under contract and, and um, wade through all that stuff. But, you know, and there's been attempts to change the code to reflect that or, exchange, or change the regs. But, you know, there, there's reasons for that 45 and, and 180 days. And it's simply a, a good tax policy, good tax reporting thing. And that is you don't want those deals lopping over into two years because that would be a nightmare for IRS and Treasury to keep track of them. So I don't see 
extensions or I don't see reductions in those time frames. And brokers like Coulter would have no motivation. That's yes. right. That we got to keep you guys problem. on your we got to keep you on your toes. <laughs> I have you know? to work with this person for another 45 days. <laughs> I might kill myself. <laughs> well, we also we said we were going to get into uh, some more stories. So Max, oh. you are living in Utah now. Is that correct? Well, I live, you know, I live in, in Dillon. I live in Utah. I've, I've got, I, I joke that I've got dual residency, uh, but I'm actually a Montana resident. It, just that my wife's a, a Utah resident. So uh, we have a home just south of Dillon um, that I used to, I drove by for 40 years and it was wondering when somebody was going to buy it and fix it up. So we did that. And then we've got the office in Dillon, but I also have a home office and place down in northern Utah just uh, north of Tremont, uh, down near Logan. Uh, it's, it's cow country, it's, it's farm country, it's a lot like you know places in Montana, and that's why I love, love being there and being be able to come back and forth to Montana too. And you like to rope and rodeo, and so you spend time on the road. Yeah, that, I haven't. I haven't. Hobbies. Your your wife's a better roper than you are. She I definitely and a better is. shot. We heard yeah, that too. Yeah. <laughs> she's a better shot than I am. With a seventeen, she's a, she's also a, a better roper than I am, and she's definitely a better horse horse person than I am because she can take a horse that I've got completely goofed up. I give that horse to her for thirty minutes, and she's got that horse lined back out again. I look like a champ for about a day or two until I get him goofed up again, and she's got to take him and get him. So, what is value? This an analogy of yourself? Yeah, or what are value you the horse here? What value do you bring to this relationship? Uh, that's I don't know. What's the I don't value know. proposition? She's a heck of a lot better cook than I am. I mean, she, you know, she can rope calves and drag them to the fire. She can fix is this anything. Still an analogy of you? <laughs> yeah. Are you still the horse we're talking about? Yeah, that's right. The calf. Yeah. Um, so being down in Utah. Uh, Last time we talked, up this way, irrigated farms, uh, maybe some ranches. I didn't see any ranches, but a lot of interest from the irrigated farmers in Utah who were selling out a very high-valued Provo, Logan, Salt Lake-type farms that were going to be sold for, I don't know, data centers, FedEx, whatever, mm -hmm. Amazon. Is that is Utah still booming, and what do you see happening with the drought down there? We have a, we have a great listener base out of Utah. I often see that Salt Lake is pretty high up in our listenership. So, shout out to the Utah listeners. Um, what's going on with the the drought down there, and, and the booming probably real estate tech industry, low tax environment, high high standard of living. Utah always ranks at the top for standard of living. Like, what's mm -hmm. what's going on in Utah these days? Boy, that's a that's a big question. You know, I try to take, try to take it off by chunks, but um, Utah, northern Utah especially, is is dear to my heart. Great place. Like I said, it's 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 cow country. It's uh, farm ranch farm and ranch stuff, big time. Uh, you can be an hour away from Salt Lake, uh, downtown Salt Lake, where I am. And be out in in really farm and ranch country, good cattle country, uh, great great farming. They don't have a lot of they don't have as many irrigation systems, pivot systems, and sprinkler irrigation systems. A lot of that farm ground there on the on the river bottoms are, is all laser leveled, and it's all uh, flood irrigated. They use siphon tubes. It's basically that whole area is irrigated by the Bear River system that comes out of you know northern Utah, then into Wyoming, Idaho, and then back into Utah again and dumps into the Salt Lake, uh, into the Great Salt Lake. Um, you know, the, the values there, a couple years ago, you were looking at irrigated farm ground. 
around that northern Utah area uh, in the river bottoms that was probably thirteen to fifteen thousand dollars an acre. You know, and, and they're not super large tracks because the ground there is so fertile. You can dig down and not hit a rock in six feet. Um, it's just unbelievably fertile ground. They're, right now, they're probably, they're probably right in the, in the middle of first cutting right now on alfalfa. And that's the difference a thousand feet in elevation from Dillon, Montana to, to Tremont and Utah will make in, in the growing season. And, and the crop production down there. So is the buyer for that someone who's speculating on the appreciation rate that it's gonna be sold for a development in the future? Or? They, that's part of it, or they're buying it actually to build stuff there right now because there's a huge influx of people into, into Utah in general, mostly around Salt Lake North, uh, the Logan, Ogden, uh, you know, and all those smaller towns, not small towns, but towns in between there. Uh, there's a huge influx of people and there's a lot of industry there. There's a lot of commercial stuff going on. So you've got in a town like Tremont, which probably has a total population of about 15,000 people, you've got um, a number of industries, uh, you know, food preparation, dairies, uh, uh, milk processing, cheese like Gosner Foods and Logan is huge. You've got uh, Icon Fitness, which makes fitness equipment. You've got West Liberty Foods in Tremont that employs a ton of people that makes a lot of the lunch meats and cheese for um, you know, companies that make sandwiches, you know, the, the subways, et cetera. Then you've got ATK, or which now is Northrop Grumman out west of Tremont that employs about 6,000 people, and they make all the booster rockets. They've made the booster rockets for the space shuttle system. So you've got this huge influx of people that have come looking for good jobs. They've sold their homes in, on the West Coast or, or elsewhere, got great prices for those homes, got there, and they're finding that it's very expensive to get land, number one, and it's very hard to get somebody who can build you a house. So there's people living you know, in RV parks, in an RV uh, trailer with four kids that are paying $1,000 a month for a trailer space just to get on the, in the queue to get a house built on a piece of property they may have bought if they were lucky before this boom. Uh, so, so the question is, can, that's they, where a can, lot they, of these guys, can they 1031 what they spent on their RV once they get into their house? <laughs> or, uh, <laughs> unfortunately, they're not. You can't do personal property exchanges anymore unless you put it on a foundation. I was going to say, pull the wheels off. Yeah, <laughs> Detitle it, pull the wheels off. Well, you know off what they say about the mobile home. It ain't home until you take the wheels off. <laughs> that's right. <so. laughs> that's right. But no, I mean... Uh, I, I see a lot of the, the, the people or the, the developers that are coming in there and buying that stuff are, are buying it for immediate construction. There's probably 500 new doors in that general Tremont area right now that are already spoken for, brand new construction. And their, their apartments, townhomes, walk-ups. How's that, how's that changing the political landscape and social landscape of Utah that was always very conservative, very closely held generational families, um, kind of the good old, maybe the good old boy system. And, and how is that also changing the tax? Um, I mean, now you have more people, more taxes, but also more services. Maybe these people come with appetites for parks and trails. I mean, mm -hmm. how, how's Utah, maybe, do we have this uh, feeling here in Montana, Andy? Is Things that, are changing a little bit. Is that, is that kind of empathetic? How's yeah. that, what's happening down there with that cultural change? Well, you know, it's, it's probably like the Yellowstone effect in Montana. 
a lot of people don't realize that a lot of the a lot of things that are filmed in in the Yellowstone series are filmed actually in Utah. Um, they're filmed in Montana too. But no, I I think that. Um, you definitely, I think whether it's Billings, Montana, Bozeman, Montana, Tremont, Utah, Logan, Utah, you're going to see a cultural change, whether whether people like it or not. And there's people out there, it's very dynamic right now, wherever you happen to be. The city planners, local planners are trying to stay ahead of that huge influx of people, you know, making sure that they've they've got enough school infrastructure or emergency services infrastructure. You can't just have developers go out there and put in 500 new doors in your town and not have them brought to task and say, hey, listen, you know, if we're gonna do this, I mean, if you're gonna do this and we're gonna give you the, uh, the green light to do that, then you've gotta help us figure out what we're gonna do with, the new, with the, the new kids in the existing school system we have. Or what are we gonna do to make sure that we got enough emergency services provider? And more importantly, I think what you're going to see is you're not going to see those old families that are down there at the local fair bidding at the fat stock sale on some kid's sheep 4-H project uh, or, or, or fat, fat steer or goat or whatever it happens to be. I mean, uh, Tremont is notorious. The, the county fair there is, Box Elder County Fair, is probably the largest county fair in the state of Utah. I think it probably surpasses uh, the state fair in, in Salt Lake. Uh, and last year, they broke a million dollars at their fat stock sale, their 4-H sale. Um, and that sale starts at 8 o'clock in the morning, doesn't get over until 6 o'clock or 7 o'clock at night. And they've got bidders in there that entire time. And that's why, and it's because of the people that love that community and have been there for a long time and understand the importance of developing that love in the community for the other people that move in there. That's a good nugget for uh, newcomers into the state. Go to your rural county fair and bid on those high-priced 4-H animals because it uh, supports local kids, uh, you know, education and initiative. But, yeah, that's a... Mm -hmm. So much the same story. I think, uh, I mean, Sheridan, Wyoming, as you mentioned, a lot of highly desirable places in the West are dealing with that. Sheridan, Bozeman, Billings, Logan... Mm -hmm. Jonathan, you seem millennial-ish. <laughs> I won't ever claim that. Is, is this uh, uncomfortable change? I mean, you you moved out to the west uh, to Dillon. You chose to reside in, or are you in Bozeman? I'm over in Bozeman. Okay, yeah. so ultra hipster. Yes, <laughs> you're, you're, ultra hipster. You're, you're on a yeah. You're on a level above Dillon yet. Um, is this a fad or is this uh, a new trend? Is this what? our generation is going to be made of and is this going to continue to last we're going to see more and more growth in the west more and more water use in the west um is it is it just a knee-jerk reaction maybe a three or four year cycle out of covid and then people will go back to mobile out of alabama <laughs> that's a great question i've actually been uh you know grappling that one with that one myself you know living in bozeman i've been there since 2003 I moved up uh, when I was in the military as a transfer, but I got to see it, you know, kind of in its early day, a little bit. I mean, I w it obviously wasn't the 90s or anything like that or 80s when it was a, a true cow town. But um, I've, I've seen it change over the course of the time of me living there and watch, you know, development come in. And I, I got to say, it's tough at this point to really put a, a finite time or a finite answer on that, whether or not it's a four-year fad 
or whether or not we're going to see, you know, this be a continued trend. And it certainly is. This is the best word to say it is it's a trend now. You know, folks are uh, cashing out of their <clears throat> properties in uh, the West Coast, East Coast, you know, the more uh, r- urban areas and densely populated communities. And they want to this is a lifestyle choice. It's not a choice about, you know, now they get to choose where they want to live. And with remote work and with a, a lot of other different flexibilities with, our, you know, our current society and uh, what Montana has to offer and a lot of these, uh, you know, Western states, that's the lifestyle that they want to live, the outdoor lifestyle, the fresh air, the, you know, the open skies and um, <clears throat> winter sports and everything like that. So do I see it changing? Uh, I, I don't think that I do. I think that I, I see this as more of a long term uh, shift. And I think I see it as, you know, when I first moved to Bozeman in 2003, everybody used to call it Bose Angeles. And I didn't really buy into that. <clears throat> it wasn't until, you know, maybe the last three years or so that it really did change. And you could see outside development money that, you know, wasn't your, your local developer. It was your, the folks from Chicago or some of the bigger cities. And then you say, okay, now it truly is, and uh, this is something that's here to stay. It's more long-term because we're getting commercial um, injections of, of capital there. We're getting you know a lot of media coverage. Famous uh, people are traveling there. They're owning investment homes there, and it's just the place that's going to be. There might be another place that matches that in the future. You know, I've <laughs> from an investment perspective, that's obviously something I've been thinking about too. Is what where could that be? But from from my Cameron, Wyoming. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what has blue ribbon trout streams? Great, uh, you know, skiing and you know, just a wonderful uh, community. And so I think that going back to Max's point, it's like, how do you balance uh, sense of community with a with a current trend and whether or not COVID and all the the pandemic and the shift and the, you know the great uh, trajectory that that had, you know. Are we going to put a four-year time limit on it? Is everybody going to, you know, move right back to the city and want to be a part of it again? It's too early to say, but I don't think that Montana is um, going to see, you know, all the folks that have moved here. You you know, some of them will move back, but I think that a majority of the Yellowstone push here is going to stay. Well, you know what I think has been happening for a long time in Bozeman and similar areas is – there's actually a fairly high level of washout, mm-hmm. but there's enough people that continue to come in because a lot of people come and don't realize it's as cold as it is in the winter or this or that, or they maybe they do have to make a living and kind of underestimated the wage potential or the cost of living, those kind of things. So sure. I think there's actually a pretty high level of, like I said, washout, but there's always more right behind them. And that's been going on for decades. I was going to say that too. And I don't see it changing. I don't, in fact, in fact, some, uh, I actually wonder if we haven't seen anything yet. Um, if the next 20 years are going to make the last 20 years look pretty insubstantial. That's kind of my suspicion. When you well, look at environmental in particular. Too. I think Max is right in the middle of it. And Dylan, what I see is people from Whitefish, Missoula, Bozeman, who've been there 30 plus years, they are running to Dylan Lewistown. Well, you know, I can tell you, because I'm a Bozeman refugee, you know, I moved back to Billings <laughs> four years ago. And it's very interesting. Four years ago, when I left, 
people in Bozeman couldn't wrap their brain around it. I, I got the, so, so wait a minute, you're moving intentionally to Billings? You don't, you don't have to? You don't have a job or a family <laughs> situation? Like, no, I'm, that's intentional. But I can't tell you how many of those people today say, oh, okay, I get it. And here's the other interesting thing. My, my friend set in Bozeman are dropping like flies. Um, but here's the deal. Their house due is to worth, age. Yeah. No, dude. <laughs> their house, you know, and you know, like I talked to my sister the other day in Seattle and her house is, you know, worth an ungodly amount of money, but she made the comment, but you know, where are we going to go? Like, it's, you know, it's great. Our house is worth, but you know, and that's the kind of place they want to live. But people that moved to Bozeman 30 years ago and own a house and their house is worth three times what they ever dreamed it was worth. They're tired, or, or they're they don't they they don't like what's going on in Bozeman. It's 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 developed too much, too crowded. They, the Bozeman they're familiar with. One case in example, friends that are you know they retired and they were able to buy a nice home and acreage on Vancouver Island, BC, and that's something that they didn't dream about before. But their house in Bozeman is worth so much mm-hmm. that it makes a lot of other things possible that they didn't ever dream of. So there's all kinds of sort of secondary waves, uh, if you will. Here's, here's an interesting thing. I mean, there's people that, you know, have, you know, have property that in Bozeman area that purchased it perhaps a year ago or two years ago, they've already doubled their money on it. And it was property that wasn't low ball stuff. It was fairly, fairly good, good, well-priced property, but they've doubled their money on it. You know, and Jonathan may, I'm sure he hasn't forgotten it, but we were talking the other day and he said that he was talking to one of our clients that made the comment he's thinking about selling because he's going to be able to get a good price for their place there and move someplace else. He said, yeah, I'm going to sell my place in Bozeman. I'm going to move to Montana. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 25 miles away. Yeah, yeah exactly. Or Lewistown, yeah. Grass Range, you know, Broadus. Um, you know, you, you name it. I mean, uh, without a doubt, if you're not attached to the amenities that Bozeman represents today, you know, which is both, which is Bose Angeles or, you know, which is a, a certain, uh, kind of urban experience by Montana standards. If, you, if you're interested in Dillon or Lewistown or boy, your, your opportunity to sell out in Bozeman and what you can buy in those other markets is substantial thank goodness we don't mm-hmm. have a walmart or a commercial airport in dillon montana or that's what lewistown a, says too <laughs> is we, yep, we'd be yeah. overrun by now lewistown's big thing is if they had a commercial airport uh things would look a lot different mm-hmm. yeah and and, and who would have thought you know there's a lot of people that are moving from the west coast to places like whitefish or columbia falls Monta- or, or or kalispell all of where I was, I grew up partly as a kid there. Mm-hmm. Uh, who would have thought, you know, that that there's people that are in the Whitefish area, or even you know, coming from the West Coast, that are buying property in Corum and Martin City and Hungry Horse, which in the old days, in the high school days, those were the places that you know, if you were a high school kid and uh, you were feeling your oats, uh, you went up there. You on a weekend night, you might get your rear end kicked all the way back to Kalispell. But they're now the garden spots of the universe, and mm-hmm. people investing a huge amount of money in some of those properties up there, uh, either in business properties or just you know rac- vacation rental type properties. Well, this this phenomenon, quote unquote, must be happening all over the west so i mean as people leave the left coast and they go to bend oregon benders the non-derogatory term from england (laughs) uh bendonites i don't know what you'd call someone from bend but if they've been there 30 plus years they're probably leaving to i don't know pendleton or 
Lewiston, Idaho. I don't know where they're going, but mm-hmm. what, what do you see in Utah? I mean, if people have been in Provo and Logan for 30-plus years, where are they getting pushed out to? A lot of those people, you, we've seen this. We've seen uh, people moving out of Salt Lake going to Bountiful, which is just north. People in Bountiful got pushed out, and they're going to South Ogden. The people in Ogden got pushed out. They're, uh, they're going up to Brigham City, Willard, Perry. The people in Willard, Perry, Brigham City are moving up to Tremont. The people in Tremont are moving to Plymouth. The people in Plymouth are moving to Portage. The people in Portage are moving to Malad, Idaho. You know, so, I'm waiting for the end of the line. Yeah, yeah. That's the, <laughs> and and you'll, you're seeing that. If you go down I-15, you'll see that all the way from the Idaho border uh, down to Salt Lake you'll see that shift of population and then there's a commuter train now that you know runs to i think it goes to um ogden from salt lake it's scheduled to go to brigham it will end up eventually in tremont because there's a lot of people that live in tremont that still commute to work in salt lake city because so you you went down the line of population density you went from high density mm-hmm. to bedroom communities mm-hmm. to rural is that kind of the spillover the the flow there yeah northern utah same thing in, in the Logan area, which is just 20 minutes across the mountain from I-15, but you've seen that shift from Ogden uh, up to Logan. I mean, not, not Logan, but Brigham City from Brigham City to those areas north of Logan, Preston, Idaho, uh, and on up the line to Grace and some of those places. People that just don't like to live in the city, but they're willing to drive that mileage, you know, to still work wherever they have a job. Are you able to track um, population densities in this flow, Andy? I'm thinking dom- domino effects, track track the mm-hmm. domino effects. Yeah, and I'd also like a pie chart of, of the main population areas that are moving to Montana. So if you had like a sliver for Texas and a sliver for California, mm-hmm. Washington. I'll, I'll, I'll get on that. Yeah, we need to collect we need, that data. We need so to I know where to mark them, it. We need to force them to fill out a questionnaire before they can come to Montana. Yeah. We need an entrance exam. <laughs> There's only one question: How do you vote? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, well, they're getting they're getting that in um, Tennessee too. I mean, Nashville is oh, one yeah. of the hottest mm-hmm. destinations Absolutely. in the nation. And when I was in an Uber, uh, my Uber driver last time I was in Nashville, I wasn't wearing my cowboy hat, and she said you're not moving here, are you? And I mm. said, no, I don't plan on it. She goes, well, if you do, you better not change how you vote. Because <laughs> I come from Montana. Mm-hmm. She wanted the same. She, yeah, she assumed I voted conservative, and she did not want that to change. All right. <clears throat> well, I don't want to get in, in trouble, you know, by being unpolitically correct. But, you know, I, you know it's, it's really interesting that we've seen um, – you know, we the reality is we're seeing people that are moving out of big urban areas and moving into, you know, more rural areas, or at least if they're living in a city or a town that has, you know, some congestion, they can at least get out quickly and go into the great outdoors and do whatever they want to do there. You know, by the same token, I mean, we're seeing people going back to the to comment the one guy made about moving, I mean, moving out of Bozeman and moving to Montana. We're seeing a lot of people that are selling properties in the Bozeman area, other places in Montana, and they're moving to Alabama, Tennessee, uh, other places where there's still a rural atmosphere to it. And, and they're looking down the pike a long ways, you know, thinking this might last. If we go there, maybe we can re- retain that kind of rural type of culture, you know, longer than we were able to maintain it in Bozeman or wherever they're, they're moving from. 
Yeah, change is hard. It's, we talk about change a lot on this, and change is the only constant, right? And mm-hmm. diversity is a good thing. I mean, yeah. to have a mix of experiences and perspectives and paradigms and dissension is a good thing. I mean, if you take a, the widest range of views possible, somewhere in the middle is going to be a, a good outcome. I've come to the conclusion after being involved in real estate in some, one form or another over 40 years now that you know, as human beings, I guess we're all entitled to our place in the sun. Uh, it, it, you just hope that people, when they move to an area, can appreciate the culture they're moving into and understand, like I've always said, you know, people move here because they, they like what's, how it's been taken care of for the last 100-plus years. And, um, and that we have a lot, of, a lot of lifestyle here that is attractive to people and or natural resources that are attractive to people because the people that live here have been good stewards of those things. And, and that's the case whether you're here in, in Montana or you're northern Utah, southern Utah, um, any place in the country, um, upstate New York. Um, there's, there's those types of qualities that appeal to people because there's been good stewards there for over a century or more. Well, I think that's a good note to, to wrap yeah. up on is uh, when you move to a place, take care to, to integrate a little bit, pay attention to what's there before mm-hmm. you and you're there. You attracted you for a reason and, and yep. respect and appreciate what came before you. That's one of the criticisms is people moving to Montana and instantly trying to make it where they came from. Yeah. That's one of the biggest frustrations. That was an awesome highlight. Max to end on that was the kind of the quote I was looking for for my <laughs> for my social media captions that was excellent thank you and Jonathan final thoughts well I just got to say I really appreciate you all having us on here it's it's been a blast there's the y'all, the y'all came out yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey that's right we were talking about that earlier there's the there's the, the southern roots yeah on it's, it's what I'm not thinking about how to make my accent more Montana <laughs> when I come here and people say well well you speak a little what do we funny. just say about integrating <laughs> we just had this discussion about the integration I'm trying it took me a while to get rid of y'all it still comes out it comes out but I appreciate that it came out, and especially in this circumstance. So thanks for having us on. Thank you, Jonathan. Max, uh, accrue it. 1031 Exchange, qualified intermediaries. Also go listen to season one if you want to hear the real technical details behind it. Send it to your clients. Send it to your family. Anyone who's going to be dealing with a 1031 to defer capital gains taxes, reach out to accrue it. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, guys. Thank you. As a real estate and finance professional, we know that you want to be a top producer and high performer. In order to do that, you need to grow your portfolio, grow your influence. The problem is rural real estate is a private and closed off network that is very difficult to enter and gain acceptance within. It's a nuanced segment that requires years of experience. This may make you feel frustrated or even scared given the high costs of getting established. We get it. But in the age of information, we believe you already have inexpensive access to knowledge and resources that would improve your competency. We understand that you feel as though you don't have time for continuing education, or that you'll worry that you're wasting your time on redundant and obsolete information. For this reason, We feature only the best accredited and established rural real estate professionals who analyze, transact, and manage billions of dollars annually. No newbies here. 
Your goal is to efficiently improve your business and be viewed as a trusted advisor. So here's how we can do that together. One, starting right now, make a simple commitment to self-improvement. Two, be sure to make it easy, convenient, and attainable. Rigidity rarely works in the long run for transformation. Three, make your structure of self-improvement entertaining and engaging. If it's fun and intriguing, you'll have a better shot at making it last. With that in mind, click subscribe on your streaming platform so you know when the latest episode has dropped. Then go to ranchinvestor.com slash podcast and subscribe to our monthly newsletter. We also have a private Facebook group simply called Ranch Investor. And this is where we can best interact with you by answering your questions and taking your recommendations. Most exciting though, is being able to follow us on YouTube by clicking the subscribe button. In the meantime, keep a notepad and pen handy. You'll undoubtedly be thinking of clients and peers in mind as you listen. Go ahead and text or email them a link to this episode for your constant contact, CRM, and your goals of being a center of influence, the expert in your field. Stick with it, and soon you'll stop waiting for the phone to ring with new business. Be the source of knowledge and the maven that other professionals are excited to refer.